I'm the scat man. I'm not. No, we're doing it again. Oh, weird. God, last time. All right, last one. Come on. All right. So just, just spoiler alert for behind the scenes, part the kimono. Um, pull back the curtain. Pull back one of the curtains in here. There's lots of curtains to pull back. There, um, there are curtains everywhere. Um, yeah. mostly my side. Um, yeah, so it's more like towels and rugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is in the last two weeks. What did we do? We did six hours last week, and we're doing. A f- Four hours. So we've done like 10 hours of podcasting yes. over the course of like two and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, because I have to go AWOL for like a month mm-hmm. um, for uh, for a work related dumbness. Um, but that will that will make. I, so we had to make sure we had enough ready to go. So we never missed it. Yes. Um, but that does mean that we are on the tail end now of like another four hours of recording after six hours the week before or two weeks ago. So I, I my brain is broken with with reconstruction it doesn't exist i go to sleep seeing charles sumner haunting my nightmares um <laughs> and and i i just i just need to get this out and be done with it sure so uh so bear with me last time on reconstruction <laughs> uh Andrew johnson was a bit of a dick the uh it turns out white people are sort of racist uh and hey what did the black people do when they got involved that time all right here we go many freedmen took an active part in voting and political life and rapidly continued to build churches and community organizations following reconstruction white democrats and insurgent groups used force to regain power in state legislatures that's how you always want to regain power in in Mm -hmm. a legislature by force and passed laws that disenfranchised most blacks and many poor whites in the south from 1810 to ni- 1890 to 1910, southern states passed new state constitutions that completed the disenfranchisement of blacks. U.S. Supreme Court U.S. Supreme Court rulings on these provisions upheld their new state constitutions and laws, and most blacks were prevented from voting in the South until the 60s. Never forget that the Supreme Court has always, always, always oh, been in 100%. favor of the ruling class. Always, yeah, it is an existing, it is it is an ol- oligarchy that is there just in case the government actually forgets which class they work for. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Full federal enforcement of the 14th and 15th Amendment did not reoccur until after passage of the legislation in the mid-60s as a result of the Civil Rights Movement. So we went functionally yeah. 100 years not enforcing three constitutional amendments. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. It's just for shits just, and just for shits and I, grins. That seems like a well good way to run. That's exactly. Yeah, but the constitution good is iron. It's ironclad. Yeah. It's ironclad. Solid, solid. Can't document. mess with it at all. Yeah, no. It was it's on paper. The founding <sighs> fathers are geniuses. You Nick should, Cage you Nick should, Cage found it. You should <laughs> We got to talk about we got to talk about that our new our new our our our, our you know spec script for national treasure three that they're doing right oh, now no. nick cage no. nick cage finds the second constitution <laughs> with the communist manifesto written on the back of it and we get socialist nationalist treasure because that's that's what i want that's what I, I think nick's gonna get it through i think i believe in him um socialist national treasure yeah yeah nick cage is a socialist national treasure. no I'm i got i got nothing that was a bad one i apologize uh in uh, during the Civil War, many in the North believed that fighting for the Union was a noble cause for the preservation of the Union and the end of slavery. You fools! After the war ended with the North victorious, the fear among radicals was that President Johnson too quickly assumed that slavery and Confederate nationalism were dead and that the Southern states could return. 
Uh, it's uh, roughly what two hundred years after that yeah. fact, and yeah. uh, they're still not. No, they're still not. It's like one hundred fifty years, but they're still not safe. Good enough for me. It might as well. It might as well. He did it in seven hundred. It's years been ago. it's been one hundred and fifty years, and he thought he could get it done in two. Yeah, kind of feels like the war in Iraq. <laughs> I have a feeling it'll be about the same timeline. God damn it! I can't wait. Anyway, for my great grandchildren to be doing their <laughs> re- deconstruction of that. In 1868, the Republicans unanimously chose Ulysses S. Grant as their presidential candidate. Grant won favor with the Republicans after he allowed Edward Stanton, a radical, to be reinstated as Secretary of War. That's the guy that uh, uh, Johnson fired under oh, the tenure of war, yeah. under the tenure of Office Act. They got him impeached. Yeah. So basically, they brought back his butt. They brought back. He brought back the radicals, buddy, and they're like, "Hey, all right, Grant, <laughs> you can have it." Uh, As early as 1862, during the Civil War, Grant had appointed the Ohio military chaplain John Eaton to protect and gradually incorporate refugee slaves in West Tennessee and northern Mississippi into the Union war effort and pay them for their labor. It was the beginning of his vision for the Freedmen's Bureau. Grant opposed President Johnson by supporting the Reconstruction Acts passed by the radicals. So, uh, Grant, so far? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Immediately upon inauguration in 1869, Grant bolstered Reconstruction by prodding Congress to readmit Virginia, Mississippi, and Texas into the Union. Those are some spicy ones. <laughs> well, sh- you got you got the one most famous for doing blackface recently. You have Mississippi and Texas. Uh, while ensuring their state constituent cons- constitutions protected every citizen's voting right. Grant met with prominent black leaders for consultation and signed a bill into law that guaranteed equal rights to both blacks and whites in Washington, D.C. In Grant's two terms, he strengthened Washington's legal capabilities to directly intervene to protect citizenship rights, even if states ignored the problem. He worked with Congress to create the Department of Justice and the Office of the Solicitor General, led by Attorney General Amos Ackerman, and the first Solicitor General, Benjamin Bristow. Congress passed three powerful enforcement acts in 1870 to 71. There were criminal codes which protected the freedmen's right to vote, to hold office, to serve on juries, and receive equal protection of the laws. Most importantly, they authorized the federal government to intervene when states did not act. Grant's new Justice Department prosecuted thousands of Klansmen under tough new laws. Grant sent federal troops to nine South Carolina counties to suppress Klan violence in 1871. Grant supported passage of the 15th Amendment, stating that no state could deny a man a right to vote on the basis of race. Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, giving people access to public facilities regardless of race. Grant! Doing yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 I, Someone come in in the Twitter DMs and tell me why Grant's an asshole. Oh, I mean, there's there's reasons. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Just just I'm getting a little I'm getting a little high on Grant right now. I need someone to bring yeah. him down a notch for me. I need someone to bring him down a couple I, pegs. I'm pretty sure there's there's some Caribbean reasons. Okay. Thank you. See, there you yeah. go. There yeah. you go. It's easy. It, it doesn't take long with American no. presidents. Yeah. It can't take long. Yeah. No. But among them, among them, he's. Got to be up less there. awful. Yeah, yeah. In the the, the less bad raid for yeah. sure. To counter vote fraud in Democrat in the Democratic stronghold of New York City, Grant sent in ten of tens of thousands of armed un, uninformed uniformed. uniformed. <laughs> so I'd say, why would you not inform them of what they were doing? That seems like a poor decision, Grant. But to uninformed federal marshals walking around and other election officials to regulate the 1870 and subsequent elections. Democrats across the North then mobilized to defend their base and attacked Grant's entire set of policies. So Grant, Grant pissed off the uh, political machine in New York City and they went after all of it. Yeah. On October 21st, 1876, Grant deployed troops to protect black and white Republican voters in Petersburg, Virginia. 
Grant's support from Congress and the nation declined due to scandals within his administration and the political resurgence of the Democrats in the North and the South. By 1870, most Republicans felt the war goals had been achieved, and they turned their attention to other issues, such as economic policies. Republicans took control of all Southern state governorships and state legislatures, except for Virginia. The Republican coalition elected numerous African-Americans to local and state and national offices, though they did not dominate any electoral offices. Black men as representatives voting in state and federal legislators marked a drastic social change. Mm. At the beginning of 1867, no African-American in the South held political office. But within three or four years, about 15 percent of office holders in the South were black, a larger proportion than in 1990. Progress, guys. Slow yeah. and steady. Yeah. Don't, don't ask for <laughs> big change. Definitely linear. It's don't definitely ask for a big very change. linear thing. It's, yeah. a, it's even evolution, people think, is just like this straight line, like from worse to better. And not even that. That's just nope. adaptations to what's around you. And people think humanity just works the same way. It's a Steven Pinker bullshit. I was going with like Michelle Kaku, like the, the end of history or whatever. Oh, it was. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Fuck it. Most of these offices were, I also think he wrote like the end of history, like in the 90s. Oh, <laughs> the concept that in 1990, with lower African American proportional representation than in 1867, you said it's over. This is as good as it gets. Get fucked. Um, just get fucked. Most of those offices were at the local level. In 1860, blacks constituted the majority of the population in Mississippi and South Carolina 47% in Louisiana, 45% in Alabama, and 44% in Georgia and Florida. So their political influence was still far less than their percentage of the population. About 137 black office holders had lived outside the South before the Civil War. Some who had escaped from slavery to the North had become educated and returned to help the South in in the post-war era. Others were free blacks before the war who had achieved education and positions of leadership elsewhere. Other African-American men elected to office were already leaders in their communities, including a number of preachers. As happened in white communities, all not all leadership depended upon wealth and literacy, but most of it did. Mm-hmm. There were few African-Americans elected or appointed to national office. African-Americans voted for both white and black candidates. The 15th Amendment to the United States Constitution guaranteed only that voting could not be restricted on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. From 1868 on, campaigns and elections were surrounded by violence as white insurgents, paramilitaries, and paramilitaries tried to suppress the black vote. Fraud was rampant. Many congressional congressional elections in the South were contested. Even states with majority African-American populations often only elected one or two African-American representatives to Congress. Exceptions included South Carolina. At the end of Reconstruction, four of its five congressmen were African-Americans. Historian James D. Anderson argued that freed slaves were the first Southerners to campaign for universal state-supported public education. We talked about that, I think, in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, Blacks in the Republican coalition played a critical role in establishing the principle in state constitutions for the first time during congressional reconstruction. Some slaves had learned to read from white playmates or colleagues before formal education was allowed by law. African-Americans started native schools before the end of the war. Sabbath schools were another widespread means that freedmen developed to teach literacy. When they gained suffrage, black politicians took this commitment to public education to state constitutional conventions. The Republicans created a system of public schools which were segregated by race everywhere except New Orleans. Wow. Strangely enough. (laughs) Of all places. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's weird. Generally elementary and a few secondary schools were built in most cities and occasionally in the countryside, but the South had few cities. 
The rural areas faced many difficulties opening and maintaining public schools. We know about that. Mm. (laughs) It's still today. Yeah. 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 In the country, the public school was often a one-room affair that attracted about half the younger children. The teachers were poorly paid. That hasn't changed. And their pay was often in arrears. Conservatives contended that rural schools were too expensive and unnecessary for a region where the vast majority of people were cotton or tobacco farmers. They had no expectation of better education for their residents. One historian found that the schools were less effective than they might have been because poverty, the inability of the state to collect taxes, and inefficiency and corruption in many places prevented successful operation of the schools. After Reconstruction ended and white elected officials disenfranchised blacks and imposed Jim Crow laws, they consistently underfunded black institutions, including the schools, which we absolutely know happens today. Mm -hmm. Every southern state subsidized railroads, which modernizers believed could hold the South out of isolation and poverty. Millions of dollars in bonds and subsidies were fraudulently pocketed. One ring in North Carolina spent $200,000 bribing the legislature and obtained millions of state dollars for its railroads. It's a pretty good investment right there. Yeah. $200,000, get a couple million. Yeah, it's not bad. Instead of building new track, however, it used funds to speculate in bonds, reward friends with extravagant fees, and enjoy lavish trips to Europe. Taxes were quadrupled across the South to pay off the railroad bonds and the school costs. So... I like how they lumped those two together because one of those we just described was basically a bunch of speculative bullshit and the other was education. Yeah. Yeah. And you lump them both. You lump them both together. Just the same. I got nothing. I got nothing. There were complaints among taxpayers because there's always complaints among taxpayers because Uh people are stupid. Because taxes have historically been low as the planar elite were not committed to public infrastructure or public education. (laughs) Taxes had historically been much lower in the South than in the North, reflecting the lack of government investment by the communities. And you wonder where we get these right-wing libertarians. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Nevertheless, thousands of miles of lines were built as the Southern system expanded from 11,000 miles in 1870 to 29,000 miles in 1890. The lines were owned and directed overwhelmingly by Northerners. Again, Mm -hmm. another reason the South didn't like them. Railroads helped create a mechanically skilled group of craftsmen and broke the isolation of much of the region. Passengers were few, however, and apart from hauling the cotton crop when it was harvested, there was very little freight traffic. As Franklin explains, numerous railroads fed at the public trough by bribing legislatures and through the use and misuse of state funds. According to one businessman, which we probably don't trust, the effect was to drive capital from the state, paralyze industry, and demoralize labor. Uh, yeah, no, that's just some business. Some yeah, it's bullshit. business bullshit. Yeah. Reconstruction changed the means of taxation in the South. In the U.S., from the earliest days until today, a major source of state revenue was the property tax. In the South, wealthy landowners were allowed to self-assess the value of their own land. Now, I'll, t- I'll tell you how much in taxes I'll pay, sir. <laughs> Don't worry. And you just see this, the, the seeds planted for the whole reason that, like, you know, you you have to do your own taxes and rich people get out of paying things and we have to have this IRS. Instead of just, these are your taxes, they're already taken out of your paycheck, that's it. You know, I mean, the whole return shenanigans, you could see where it was all seeded. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it. These fraudulent assessments were almost valueless, and pre-war property tax collections were lacking due to property value misrepresentation. State revenues came from fees and from sales tax on slave auctions. Mm. Some states assessed property owners by a combination of land value and a capitation tax. 
whatever, a tax on each worker employed. Ah, there you go. This tax was often assessed in a way to discourage a free labor market, where a slave was assessed at 75 cents, while a free white was assessed at a dollar or more, and a free African-American at $3 or more. Holy You are literally actively disincentivizing employ- uh, this is not the argument like the Milton Friedman argument that well you have to be able to pay black people less you won't employ them you're yeah. actively saying you if you employ slaves we'll make it cheaper for you the fuck good god um, some revenue also came from poll taxes <laughs> that's great these, <laughs> these taxes were more than poor people could pay and with the designed and inevitable consequence that they did not vote during Reconstruction, the state legislature mobilized to provide for public need more than had previous governments, establishing public schools and investing in infrastructure, as well as charitable institutions such as hospitals and asylums. They set out to increase taxes, which were unusually low. The planters had provided privately for their own needs. There was some fraudulent spending in the post-war years. A collapse in state credit because of huge deficits forced the state to increase property tax rates. In places, the rate went up ten times high, to 10 times higher, mm-hmm. despite the poverty of the region. The planters had not invested in infrastructure, and much had been destroyed during the war. In part, the new tax system was designed to force owners of large plantations with huge tracts of uncultivated land either to sell or to have it confiscated for failure to pay taxes. The taxes would serve as a market-based system for redistributing the land of the landless freedmen and white poor. Sure, that'll work. Mississippi, for instance, was mostly frontier, with 90% of the bottom lands in the interior undeveloped. Called upon to pay taxes on their property, essentially for the first time, angry plantation owners revolted. Just Tea Party. Just Tea Party people. Just Tea Party people. Uh, But Nathan, they're protecting their freedom. They just, they trust the Constitution. Guys, if you let us decide where to spend our money, we spend it best. Cut to no infrastructure spending, no no public education, no nothing. Yeah, Yeah, they they were doing great making their own decisions. So good. So great. Everything was good. Um, Called upon to pay taxes. Yeah, they revolted. The conservatives shifted their focus away from race to taxes. (laughs) Fun. A pivot they've enjoyed to this day. Okay. Yeah. So. (laughs) Yeah. Let that that one breathe for a second. (laughs) Okay. While the scalawag element of Republican whites supported measures for black civil rights, the conservative whites typically opposed these measures. Some supported armed attacks to suppress blacks. They self-consciously defended their own actions within the framework of a white American discourse of resistance against tyrannical government, and they broadly succeeded in convincing many white citizens. It's never changed. It's It's never changed. Oh, my God. It's current political discourse. Oh. It never changes. I'm hearing all of the Republican pundits. It's, Rush it's, Limbaugh is talking right now. It's it's. I mean, I, it's Clive and oh. Bund, it's Clive and Bundy, baby. I it's, mean, we're we're at it. Jesus, I just Mitch McConnell's little fucking turtle head just popped out of his suit. <laughs> Ran Paul over there. I don't like taxes. <laughs> In in Kentucky, of all places, too. Like, of course you don't like taxes. Your great-great-grandfather was evaluating, was assessing his own property values. (laughs) Sociopath. (sighs) 
The opponents of Reconstruction formed state political parties affiliated with the National Democratic Party and often named the Conservative Party. Again, you're starting to see this shift in... Yeah. They supported or tolerated violent paramilitary groups such as the White League in Louisiana and the Red Shirts in Mississippi. And the Carolinas. Tolerated. They tolerated. 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 Well, supported or tolerated. One okay, or the other. Fair. Sometimes it was direct support. And intimidated black and white Republican leaders at election time. Historian George C. Rabble called such groups the military arm of the Democratic Party. By the mid-1870s, the conservatives and Democrats had aligned with the National Democratic Party, which enthusiastically supported their cause, even as the National Republican Party was losing interest in Southern affairs. That kind so white white people that were abolitionists and cared about equality got bored with it before it was done. Correct. And white people that didn't like the equality stayed passionate. Correct. And so I feel, I feel, I feel like this is something that never, ever, ever changes. And again, we see in the whole current parties thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that actually does take us to the end of one. That is the history okay. of Reconstruction up to the points okay. that we will be dealing with. Up okay. to the points that. Up to the points where we're going to let Du Bois take the wheel. from ex- Exactly. But that doesn't kind of end this part because there is some. We need to now go over something called the Dunning School. Okay. So the Dunning School is really what Du Bois was responding to. The Dunning School was the predominant narrative of historiography about Reconstruction at the time Du Bois was writing. Okay, so this Uh, is where Hillary got her history. (laughs) Um, If Hillary was doing it in the 30s, I guess. But, uh, I mean, I don't know. She may be an immortal vampire. I don't know know these things. The Dunning School viewpoint favored conservative elements in the South, the Redeemers, if we remember the... uh, the Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, Yeah, not not a, a, you know... Um, holy war in any way. No, you know, no not at all. Black not people, all. Yeah. Uh, and disparaged radical Republicans who favored civil rights for former slaves. The views of the Dunning School dominated scholarly and popular depictions of the era from about 1900 through the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Adam Fairclough, a British historian whose expertise includes Reconstruction, summarized the Dunningite themes. All agreed that black suffrage had been a political blunder and that the Republican state governments in the South that rested upon black votes had been corrupt, extravagant, unrepresentative, and oppressive. The sympathies of the Dunningite historians lay with the white Southerners who resisted congressional reconstruction, whites who organizing under the banner of the conservative or Democratic Party used legal opposition and extra-legal violence to oust Republicans from state power. Although Dunningite historians did not necessarily endorse extra-legal methods, they they did tend to palliate them. From start to finish, they argued congressional reconstruction, often dubbed radical reconstruction, lacked political wisdom or legitimacy. Mm. So now you're starting to get a kind of a picture of what we're working with here. Uh, this is this this is where they blame the the economic downturn on the the reconstruction. This is where they blame 
this everything. Is, they oh. try to retroactively blame reconstruction plight. was a mistake type thing. Yes, the the not it wasn't a mistake that we built our entire economic system on a system of human slavery. Mm-hmm. That's not the root cause of the issue. The root cause of the issue is that you gave those black people the right to vote, and that fucked everything up. And thank goodness this dark period in our history where they did this horrible reconstruction thing is over is the narrative that yeah, they're doing. Yeah. Very similar. Okay. Um, historian Eric Forner, a leading specialist on Dunningites, uh, says the traditional or Dunning school of, recon- of reconstruction was not just an interpretation of history. It was part of the edifice of Jim Crow. It was an explanation for and a justification of taking the right to vote away from black people on the grounds that they completely abused it during Reconstruction. It was a justification for the white South resisting outside efforts in changing race relations because they worried about having another Reconstruction. All of the alleged horrors of Reconstruction helped freeze the minds of the white South in resistance to any change whatsoever. And it was only after civil rights swept away the racist underpinnings of that old view that black people are incapable of taking part in American democracy that you could get a new view of Reconstruction widely accepted. I would heavily take a pause there so that we can edit out that big thump. Yeah. I would heavily contest the argument that the civil rights uh, uh, movement swept away racist underpinnings no. in the South in any meaningful way no, at all, no, period. No. Yeah. Um, but, also, again, and, and maybe one day we'll read Hammered and Ho, I hope, um, the, you know, it was the tail end of a lot of movement in the South. Like, the Jim Crow laws didn't go away in 1965. No. They've been hacked away for years. Same yeah. way the Emancipation Act didn't free anybody. It yeah, didn't yeah. solve the, the, the conditions. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's it. it, it that you could get that. So they basically said it wasn't until the sixties that you could get out of this Dunningite view of it, that you could yeah. have some other interpretation of reconstruction. Um, and for a long time, it was an intellectual straitjacket for much of the white South. They, they were locked up in this school because this is what they were taught and this is what they were told. And if you keep pumping this up generationally over and over again, you convince you, if you tell someone a lie long enough, they They're will, be, the they will yeah. believe it. They will believe it with, with regardless of a fact. Yeah. Um, for, uh, Historians have a lot to answer for in helping propagate a racist system in this country. So, again, this was done by historians. Historians yeah. were writing a obviously false narrative because it suited what they wanted. So where did this come from? The school was named after Columbia University professor William Archibald Dunning, a solidly fucking racist name if I've ever heard one. <laughs> That's a man that does some imperialism right there and then, right. does, then, then goes home and does racism. <laughs> Mr. Archibald Dunning. <laughs> PhD. <laughs> whose writings and those of his PhD students compromise the main elements of the school. Archibald was more doing like wildly uh, unfounded race science and, yeah. and, and race history in the same way that Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys did wildly unfounded and, and race racist uh, uh, economics and he's, things of that he's, nature. He's eugenics Milton, Milton Friedman, essentially, sort of. Sort of. Um, yeah. Also also just historical Milton Friedman. Yeah. Because Milton Friedman was an economist, not yeah, a historian. He's right, trying to do, he's, and, and honestly, and this is, this it almost offends me more, this is, this he's is, trying to do history, but like just with a complete disregard for history. This is Milton Friedman, but where the free market is white man's burden. Yeah, yeah. There, there you go. go. Yeah, yeah, there we go. We nailed it. Took us a minute. We, yeah, we got yeah, it. We got it. We got it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get the whole time. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. it. We do it. We do it. Oh, God. 
He supported the idea that the South had been hurt by Reconstruction and that American values had been trampled by the use of the U.S. Army to control state politics. American values. Now, American values were not apparently tarnished um, by the whole half of America uh, uh, leaving the Union and fighting with military force to complete slavery. It was the military occupation after the fact to keep those fuckers in line and reintegrate them into the country. I have just slapped my pop filter away in rage that caused (laughs) that's trampling American values. Yes. So, um, fuck. Yes. So, whenever someone says American values, I mean, if you didn't already know, it was a horribly racist dog, dog whistle. Uh, it definitely, definitely is horrible so racist. Dog already, whistle. this guy is a piece of human garbage. Yes. Let's dive yes. further. Um, he oh contended boy. that the freedmen had proved incapable of self-government and thus made segregation necessary. Okay, so just like you stupid poors can't govern yourselves, so communists are lethal killers. You stupid black people can't govern yourselves, so Reconstruction is just a stupid force of evil. Yep. Yeah, okay, translates. Yep, perfect. Yep, Got yep, it. Got yep. it. Yep. Dunning believed that allowing blacks to vote and hold office had been a quote-unquote serious error. Yeah, no, yeah, okay. As a professor, he taught generations of scholars, many of whom expanded his views of the evils of Reconstruction. The Dunning School and similar historians dominated the version of Reconstructionary history in textbooks in through the 1960s. Their generalized adoption of de- depreciatory terms such as scalawags for Southern white Republicans and carpetbaggers for Northerners have persisted in historical works. Those two phrases, those words that we absolutely know, come out of this school. They invented those phrases. Oh, geez. Now, I I know I've I've heard, like, carpetbaggers for people mm-hmm. that, like, I mean, it's used a lot of times for people that, like, show up new places to work, that yeah. travel to work. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's, and because that's exactly the phrase it was, but it's a derogatory yeah. term that they created that is still absolutely taught because that is absolutely how I was taught Reconstruction when I was in school yeah. in the early 2000s. Like, it's not gone. Yeah. So, it, it's, that's, again, just knowing where the origins of yeah, things. I, I never important. heard of this like ferociously and in depth, but in school, I also, you know, kind of, it was dusted past like, oh, reconstruction. That was that little mistake we did after the civil war and just on and on and on, yep. you know? Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <sighs> so, yeah. So these, those have persisted and those are, are kind of ingrained still explaining the success of the Dunning school. Historian Peter Novick noted two forces, the need to reconcile the North and the South after the war. And the increase in racism as social Darwinism appeared to back the concept with science. Oh, nice. that contrib- that contributed to a racist historiographical consensus around the turn of the 20th century on the criminal outrages of Reconstruction. You Novik- see shit like this, and you wonder why the Soviet Union fell for Lenchenkoism. Of course, it did. Yeah. It's, but this, I mean, it makes sense. They, the, the North and the South both knew they needed each other. The South needed a place to export their shit. The North needed to buy shit from the South. Yes. They had to have a unifying factor. They had to come together and they came together to agree it's all black people's fault. Yeah. It, that's literally all this is. It's, it's so fucking insidious. Um, he wrote, Denovic writes, James Ford Rose, citing Louise Agais, said that the whole country has already learned through years of costly and bitter experience was known to this leader of scientific thought before we ventured on the policy of trying to make Negroes intelligent by legislative acts. John W. Burgess wrote that a black skin means membership in a race of men which has never itself succeeded in subjugating passion to reason. For William A. Dunning, blacks had no pride of race and no aspiration or ideals save to be like whites. Oh, oh good. God. It's the jungle book. Oh, my oh good. God. Oh, God. 
Elias Paxton Oberholzer quoted approvingly the Southern observation that Yankees didn't understand the subject because they had never seen a N-word hard slur except Fred Douglas. Oh, my God. Blacks were as credulous as children, which in intellect they in many ways resembled. You don't understand how those dirty those dirty black people are. I've been down there. I've seen them. You don't get it. You don't. Uh. Mind you, this is the dominant narrative right yeah. now. This is the dominant narrative being taught. So imagine you again, we, we have our we have our biography of Dr. Uh, du Bois up yep. to this point. You yep. know where he's going. Yep. This is the narrative he he is living in constantly because this is through the 60s yeah. um, that this that this was the heavy, heavy narrative. And Du Bois yep. wrote well before that. Yes. Um, even James Wilford Garner's reconstruction in Mississippi, which was regarded by Dr. Du Bois as the fairest work of the Dunning School, depicted Reconstruction as, quote-unquote, unwise, and black politicians as liabilities to Southern administrations. In 1940s, Howard K. Beale began to define a different approach. Beale's analysis combined an assumption of racial egalitarianism and an insistence on the centrality of class. Kind of like that guy. He claimed that some of the more progressive Southern historians continued to propose that their race must bar Negroes from social and economic equality. Beale indicated other Southern historians making more positive contributions were Southern liberals. I I don't think that's a weird one, such as C. Van Woodward and Francis Simpkins. While he did not study with Dunning or at Columbia University, the Southern historian E. Merton Coulter represented some typical views. According to the New Georgia Encyclopedia, I didn't know they made their own. He framed his (laughs) literary course to praise the Old South. Oh, Ooh. God. Glorify Confederate heroes, vilify uh, Northerners, and denigrate Southern blacks. He taught at the University of Georgia for 60 years. Holy shit. Uh, Founded the Southern Historical Association and edited Georgia Historical Quarterly for 50 years. So he had many avenues of influence. Historian John Hope Franklin wrote of Coulter. No sooner was revisionism launched, however, that E. Merton Coulter insisted that no amount of revision can write away the grievous mistake made in this abnormal period of American history. He declared that he had not attempted to do so, and with that, he subscribed virtually to all the views that had been set forth by the students of Dunning. And he added a few observations of his own, such as education soon lost its novelty for most Negroes. They would spend their last piece of money for a drink of whiskey and being by nature highly emotional and excitable. They carried their religious exercises to extreme lengths. Oh, that's that's what it is. They're not they're not generally religious because most people that are poor and oppressed are generally religious. They are generally religious because they're stupid. Their stupid black blood makes them too passionate to make them dumb. And and it's definitely not white people. They're dumb fundamentalists. No, where they take you like in back rooms of evangelical jails. To, or jails, churches, and I mean, radicalize you. Yeah, might as well find the lie and, and, and radicalize the shit out of you to hate Muslims. No, no, it's definitely it, it's definitely almost, black people. It's not like religion could be seen as a coping mechanism for a group of people that yeah, are no. living in a life where you're only and, and, hope of an opium of the masses, if you will. Maybe a little bit, maybe a yeah. little bit, especially if an enslaved group of people yeah. who's only hope of a better life may come with some salvation at the end of this miserable fuck of one that you've put them through. Yep. I don't know. Nope. They're just delusional, passionate people. Yeah. Nope. Definitely. Eric, Holy fuck. Eric Forner wrote in 1988, 
The fact that blacks took part in government, wrote E. Merton Coulter in the last full-scale history of Reconstruction, written entirely within the Dunning tradition, was a diabolical development to be remembered, shuddered at, and execrated. Yet while these works abounded in horrified references to Negro rule and Negro government, blacks, in fact, played a little role in these narratives. Their aspirations, if mentioned at all, were ridiculed, and their role in shaping the course of events during Reconstruction completely ignored. When the writers spoke of the South or the people, they meant whites. Blacks appeared as either passive victims of white manipulation or as an unthinking people whose animal nature threatened the stability of civilized society. The first work to challenge this view was W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. And that takes us up to where we're going to be starting. Yeah, that that's a good sighting off sentence right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was that, it's not bad. So uh so again, we're as much as I would think, you know, as much as it would be fun to drive immediately into black reconstruction in America, um, as we are want to do at times, we are gonna deviate a little bit and we are going to stop off because again, I want to before we launch into the work, we now have our context. Yes. We have more context than context ever has had. No, yeah. I have a lot. I have we have a lot of fucking context. A lot. And it should be the thing that that we didn't need so much context for theoretically, because like people don't know, say, you know, World War One as much as as they should or Russian history as much as it, but I mean, my God, like, we were so mistaught that we really that's, needed this. I mean, honest, I think that's the hardest part. I think I honestly had a better, I may have had a better understanding of World War One or a better understanding of the Russian Revolution than I did Reconstruction because we are so intentionally mistaught this one. Yeah. Because it's so crucial for us to uh, not Like you could go, what is the Paris Commune and then learn it in a day. You go, what is Reconstruction? And it's just, it's such a deep dive because you have to unwind what you were taught. Yeah. And that's, and that's, I think, why this context was important. And again, I think just the longer we do this, the more, you know, again, yeah. the more we want to be better at this. Um, so that being said, we are going to get a little bit of a tone for how Du Bois writes, Du Bois's mm-hmm. style, yes. um, and some of his opinions before we launch right into the work by doing, um, an excerpt from the souls of black folk, uh, of, on Booker T. Washington and yep. others yes, and others that <laughs> will be your next, that'll be the next thing we read. And the last thing we read before we start the actual book in general. So for anyone that wanted to read this, uh, you have plenty of time. You could have already read it and then you can read along with us. Alex, yeah. hi, how are you? You've probably already finished the book by the time <laughs> you've, uh, uh, you've heard this one, so you know, strap on. Uh, but yeah, that's 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 where we're going. So again, Absolutely. next week we'll be uh, on Booker T. Washington and others. And that being said, if you want to talk to us, if you want to reach out and correct us on something that we have obviously said wrong, because if I did all of that without making a massive error in the last three hours of just binge reading my notes, um, yeah. But do that. You can send that to at Mark's Madness on Twitter, at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter, or you can email us at uh, Mark's Madness Pod at gmail.com. Uh, if you don't want to communicate with us in either of those formats and are a sweet, sweet uh, Zoomer or someone that loves Discord as much as I do, um, come to the Dumb and Awful Discord, uh, which is just Dumb and Awful's Discord channel. If you need access to it, you know, hit, hit us up on Twitter or email and I'll get you access to that. Um, but yeah, it's there. It's just hanging out. Um, and, uh, that's where I spend most of my time. And we have, we had, we had a really good discussion the other day. We had some solid, uh, solid analysis on, you know, Marxism and, and we, we chat and then occasionally we watch movies. Uh, uh, we, you know, we watched, yeah, I think we watched Big Trouble in Little China the other night on Discord. It was fun. Um, so yeah, come out, come out there. They're all, everyone's comrades. Everyone talks, talks cool. And if you're an asshole, we kick you out. So it's, it's, it's basically like Twitter without the shitheads. Um, it's really cool. 
that being said, David, anything on your end? Uh, no, that's it for me right now. All right, sweet. Uh, I'm going to go take a nap for a month. <laughs> I will see you guys uh, on the other side of, God willing, the most miserable fucking test I've had to take in my life. Uh, I'm Nathan. I'm David. Bye. Bye.